Please remain standing and turn your Bibles to the passage we'll be speaking about today, that the Lord will be speaking to us about from Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 6 and going to the end of the second commandment, that is verse 10, starting in 6 and going to 10. Starting in verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. Blessed be his name. You may be seated. We ought not apologize for the Reformation, but I think we often forget just how radical the Reformation was. Uh, My time in John Knox's church in St. Giles reminded me of this. During the Reformation, there was an incredible amount of vandalism. It's not something we think about very often, but our Reformed forefathers actually started out as bold-faced criminals, many of them. Unlike the overzealous Christians in Geneva before Calvin arrived, John Knox did not break every Roman Catholic image immediately. Rather, he broke the images within St. Giles after he became the pastor of St. Giles, It was then redecoration at that point, not vandalism. It's painful to see that in our own day, the fire that we once saw in the early Reformation for God's truth in the second commandment, even misguided fire and zeal, has seemingly left us in our present day that the consistent following of God's Ten Commandments does not seem to be very important. Images of God are very common today, in fact, not only in Roman Catholic cathedrals, but in some so-called conservative churches and homes, especially in December. Images of Jesus, even in church nativity sets, are everywhere. This is, of course, because of inroads within the church of sincerity triumphs over obedience type of thinking. Thus, the logic goes of this type of thinking, which is very prevalent today. If someone is sincere, it does not matter so much to God how they worship. Sincerity is the most important thing to God, these types of people claim. This is not true, as we will see in the second commandment. second commandment proves that God actually does care about how we worship. He cares about our sincerity, but he cares about how we worship. For, as the first commandment shows us who we are to worship, the second commandment shows us how we are to worship. God directs us how we are to worship. We are not allowed, according to the second commandment, to worship in any way that we imagine, but only according to the allowance of God. We are not even allowed to worship in the way we imagine if we are sincere in our worship. Specifically, we are not allowed to worship God through images. It's the first section. Our commandment has two commands. We do not worship God by images, but that which is the singular command. 
but it has two parts to it. The first half of this commandment says in verse 8, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is that on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Does this mean that we cannot make images of anything? Is my daughter sinning when she makes a picture of a cat? Is That is indeed an image or a likeness of something that is on the earth beneath. No, we must remember that we are in the first table of the law, as we have said before, the first four commandments which deal with our duty directly to God. The second commandment immediately follows the first commandment, which is, of course, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and tells us that this commandment is not about images in general, but images of God or of so-called gods. This is a command about how we relate to God, specifically. Romans 1 shows us the second commandment being violated in this way. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This commandment is about our worship of God and how images relate to that worship. It is not against art itself, just against a very specific type of art that directly relates to God and his worship by his people. Our sons and daughters can continue to draw images of animals, and we can continue to appreciate art. But God makes no objection to art in Scripture. He made objection to any image of anything in all creation that was to represent him or was set up by people to supposedly compete with his own glory. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism wisely summarizes this, the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. So that this first part of the second commandment about images tells us even if outside of a worship context, we ought not to have pictures of Jesus as God himself anywhere at any time. This is exceedingly difficult with children's literature today because the prevalent opinion is the old Roman Catholic sentiment, Pope Gregory's contention, images are the books of the unlearned. What matter is that to us? Do children need images of Christ because they are unable to read? Can they not communicate? Can they not hear? Is the Holy Spirit unable to work in children apart from images? Gregory, nor modern children publishers, have heard Habakkuk 2.18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? Scripture is unequivocal about images depicting God. Let us not capitulate. The second part of this commandment says in verse 9, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, that is, the images that they are not to make. There are two assumptions in this part of the commandment. First, that every man is, to borrow an atheistic phrase, hopelessly religious. God recognizes that man wants to bow down and to serve, that, it, that is part of his nature, that he wants to worship them from the very core of his being. God made us to worship, and that is still so true of us that God knows we will bow down to all kinds of monstrous things simply because of it, because we are rebels against God. We are, to the very core, worshipful, religious beings. Second, assumption part in this part of the commandment, that every man is bound to formally worship 
God. Every man is bound to formally worship God or to bow down and serve him as he demands. This is one of the first explicit commands for formal worship in Scripture. That is, for today, God is establishing a formal type of corporate Sunday worship, which will have a certain character that he alone establishes. Of course, at this time it was Saturday, and now it is the Lord's Day on Sunday. But formal worship is to be gone to, because it is God's command that we do so. To link these two commands is to say simply this, do not worship God by images. However, the assumption behind this command is much deeper than merely this. The assumption of the second commandment is that God cares about how we worship him. God will not accept just any worship. This command tells us how we are to approach God, actually, in worship. And he is very specific in how this ought to be done. Certainly not by images, but in the rest of Scripture, God continues the theme and starts in the second commandment. That starts there in the second commandment, saying, Do not worship me by anything I have not commanded you to do. As we go to our second section, we see how Israel did not heed the word here in the second commandment. They're an example of how not to worship God by the second commandment. It is revealing to remember as well who God is talking to. He's talking, of course, to Israel, but who for the last 400 years were captives in the image-based culture of Egypt. The gods of Egypt were represented everywhere in Egyptian culture. We can even see them now everywhere in Egypt. Not because they thought that those gods looked exactly like humans with eagles or an eagle for a head, but because it was a, a way that they thought they had to relate to these gods and connect to them by representing them in some of their perfections. A god of strength might be an ox, uh, or for fertility might be a rabbit, etc. These ways of worshiping according to what they felt was correct and helpful to their own worship were simply the assumption of the culture that Israel had just spent 400 years in. Turn to Exodus 32, and you will find Israel calmly break the second commandment, right in front of God. They represent God with a bull like they might in Egypt, not because they thought God was a bull, but because God was so transcendent that they feared they could not relate to him. So they represented him as a bull full of strength, very similar to an Egyptian worship practice, and really... This is a very human thing to do, unfortunately, in our sinful state. It is taking hold of of Israel here. And it is utterly against what God says here. He just told them in Exodus of the second commandment, and they break it. We are not allowed to worship God according to what we feel is right, or if God seems so far away that we add something to it or what we feel gives us a relationship to God, or what suits us. God judged Israel severely for making an image of him, whether it was a sincere feeling of worship in Israel which caused them to make that image or not. It was sin. It was, Exodus 32.30, a great sin, and 3,000 Israelites died that day. So we must apply this to our own time. Although things such as Lent may appear to be worshipful activities, 
the Reformed have rejected observance of Lent because it's something that we have added to God's calendar. It is an addition to the way that God called us to worship. It is something that has come exclusively from the human brain and for reasons he deemed good rather than God with his own reasons. The second commandment demands that we worship God according to what he has set down, not but what our brains set down. Therefore, let us serve God by commands he gave, not by commands he never gave. But why would God restrict us from images and restrict us from a worship like this when they seem to so many people absolutely necessary? We see images in every nook and cranny of a Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox building and their homes, in fact, as well as images embraced by even most so-called Christians in America. Why is this second commandment so important to God and to us that he would say, verse 9, that he is jealous, jealous, and will visit the iniquity of those who hate him by showing, but showing steadfast love to those thousands of those who keep me and love my commandments? Well, this is the second, or the th- rather the third section. The reason for this commandment you find here, but also in Deuteronomy 4, it is in the righteously jealous God of the commandment. The reason for the commandment is in God himself. Let us rejoice that God has not commanded us without giving us good reasons, by the way, rational reasons, as he always does. Deuteronomy 4 reveals much of God's reasoning for this commandment upon images, Verse 15 of that chapter. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, he says, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. Then there's a near word-for-word recitation of the second commandment in an expansion as well. And this is the explanation for that second commandment. Since you saw no form... On the day that the Lord spoke to you, God did not represent himself when God spoke to Israel at Mount Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai. Why would we attempt, why would we attempt to represent him? God did not desire to be represented by men, or else he would have shown what representation he desired at Sinai. Here is the reason for the second commandment. Every representation, every image we create is unsuitable to God, the infinite God, or else he would have already represented himself for images to be made by man when he was given the chance before all Israel to do it here at Mount Sinai. All of scripture agrees with this. As God is pure spirit, how will we represent what is by nature invisible and immaterial? So Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? Even in everyday life, we know no image of anything catches the thing completely. Take a picture. And although it may be a very good picture, pictures do not make good people. No person is satisfied satisfied simply with an image of a person after their death. Even the image of them, which you have in your mind after death, is wildly imperfect. No one can perfectly represent the world or anything in it with an image. And this is from material images of material things. How much more so than are material images unable to capture immaterial things? The Lord is so jealous for his glory that 
He will not suffer his people to lower him to the level of the creature. He is so high above the creature that every image man could make would be a dishonor against him. He is, in fact, jealous for his own honor in this way. This word that God uses here in verse 9, jealous, has come upon hard times in our own age. Part of this is simply because being jealous is unacceptable to an age which so values so-called freedom in relationships. Husbands and wives have given up on their rightful duties to one another and have allowed each other types of familiarities of which the opposite sex ought never to be allowed. Simply to question these types of familiarities between your spouse and their actions toward a friend is considered by most in these days as either paranoid or controlling. Of course, there must be good reason to have these jealous suspicions. If sexual immorality hides repeatedly behind even the most mundane action, then the jealous person is likely creating his jealousy from his own brain and his own insecurity. However, if he or she feels jealous and finds good reason to be jealous, then the righteous thing is to be jealous. Unless this person is jealous, he has sinned against God and is unlike God in this. Indifference in sin is a sin of the greatest kind. And indifference to the sin of those you love and have covenanted to love before God is a sin of an even greater kind. It is this type of jealousy that God speaks of himself in, as jealous here in verse 9. In fact, God says, my name is jealous in Exodus 32. Hear this, lovers of God. Unless God is a jealous God, then he is not God at all, so he says. The point of using this word, this word that we do not like in our own time, in the second commandment, is to show that God has good reason to suspect his people will indeed break this second commandment. It is to show that God suspects his people of breaking it, and as a jealous spouse, he will not abide even the slightest tinge uh, or the first steps toward image worship. So zealous is he for his name's sake, and so great his love for his church, that he is jealous over them for their good, as a spouse would be for their spouse. Any image that we make of God or of images we worship is infidelity to this great God, our husband. So God also sets a curse and a blessing within this commandment. The curse we find is in verse 9, and the blessing in verse 10. First, the curse, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This ought to strike terror in our hearts. It shows not, I must say, that God will judge our children for the sins of their parents. But it does say that sin has generational consequences. Your drunkenness, your anger, your lying, and abuse will not only affect you and your spouse, but your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and beyond. It even shows the heart of those who worship God according to their own caprice. They hate God because God tells them what to do. Instead, we want to be in charge. To reject God's second commandment is to reject God entirely according to God himself in this curse. On the other hand, God will not be neutral to those who embrace the second commandment. Verse 10, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments 
who love me and keep my commandments. God's mercy far outweighs his judgment in this commandment. Whereas the first has only four generations of wrath at most, God's blessing extends even to a thousand generations of those who fulfill his commandments. Therefore, be encouraged. Although we so often make God jealous, God is merciful to his wife. Although we so often center our lives upon ourselves and our own desires for what we want God to be, God will be merciful to his wife, the church, as Israelite history has shown. The point in all this is that God is turning our eyes away from ourselves in this commandment, away from ourselves, our preferences, our prejudices. He turns us away from ourselves as the ultimate decision maker for our lives and what is good and where life comes from. He turns us away for our natural tendency to make ourselves the monarch of our actions and turns us to the true king. To worship the true God truly is to worship him only as he declares to us. And to be not only exclusively God worshipers, but worshipers exclusively as God commands. He turns us to submission to God's will, to a God-centered life. And that life is not burdensome. It is not against our desires, in fact, for our better desires. For we do desire to see God as we are religious people, as he has even declared in this commandment. And this is not a bad desire. The problem is that we are sinful and sinfully cannot stand in our sinfulness his presence, as well as we are unable to create an image of God ourselves that honors him. However, these limitations God overcame in Christ. Christ stood in our presence as the God-man. And Christ is the image of the invisible God, says Colossians, but not created by human hands, but by God himself in that his human nature that he took upon. We cannot create images of God, but who says that God cannot? The image he creates is perfect. As we continue on to the God-centered life, God provides what we desire in Christ in the image of Christ. The most glorious image, the most mysterious image of God our Savior is Jesus Christ. The most interesting image, because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews 1.3 says. After study of this second commandment, we are now fully, or at least finally, we will never get to the bottom of this second commandment, finally in a position to catch a glimpse of just how incredible, just how mysterious, and just how overwhelmingly humbling the incarnation of Jesus was. The second person of the eternal and blessed Trinity added upon himself a human nature. Although this human nature was perfect, it is still the form and image of a creature. It was an incredible and overwhelmingly mysterious humiliation on the Son's part. God himself. Praise God, in Jesus, as the God-man, God was perfectly revealed in human flesh. When we see Christ, we see God. When we see Christ act, God acts. When Christ speaks, God speaks. When all of us see Christ, whether in pictures or in person on the day of judgment... 
We ought to bow down immediately in worship, for this is God. Of course, those pictures that we see are idols, but if there ever were an image of Jesus, we ought to bow down. That people do not shows how impious they truly are. That we gather here today is because of that incredible, awesome work of God to come in human flesh. Is faith in his work in the body as the word become flesh that we are saved? at all. Jesus, the exact imprint of God's nature, and that nature, the perfect image that Israel desired when they created the golden calf in Exodus 32, was murdered by Jewish hands upon the cross. It is to be wondered then that we sinful humans like the Jews create false images of God at every chance that we have which God then destroys for being evil. But then when God creates a true image of himself, sinful human beings destroy it for being the true image of God. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, died by human hands. What ought to be our punishment is eternal death for such a horrible affront to his humble service to us who broke the second commandment. But instead of prosecuting us to the third, fourth generation of those who hate him, God did the nearly unthinkable after his death. Christ not only rose from the dead, but used our destruction of his perfect image to bless us with eternal life. If we trust in Christ for our salvation, we can trust God. God did not leave us without an image of himself. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. Now, we cannot represent his image now. We do not know what he looks like in his sacrilege to do so. But he is the image, the exact imprint of the Father. So says John 14, 9, the exact imprint, the image of the invisible God. Although we cannot make images of God, this does not preclude that God may make images of himself. We may not try to reproduce these images, but we can rejoice because Jesus, God himself, has given us images of his love, which represents Christ and his benefits and the eternal love of God. And some of these are the Lord's Supper and baptism, the images which God has given us, besides the image of of himself in his Son. And it was always his plan to give us images, but it was always his plan to give us only one image of his, his eternal glory, That is to say, the deepest part of why we are not to make any graven images is because God was to give his perfect image in his Son for all eternity, and we are not to replace it. So, brothers and sisters, to summarize, let us not provide for ourselves what God has or will provide for us in Jesus Christ. It is to be dependent upon the blessings which God provides, dependent upon the worship which he provides, whether in the form of commands or in the form of promises or in the form of God's direct actions in Christ and his Holy Spirit. This is all of life. We do not go outside the manner of God's way or of God's images besides having the image of Christ provided for us in the New Testament writings. We do not go beyond what is provided For what God provides is far better than we could ever ask or think. Jesus Christ being the proof of this. Let us not yearn for new ways of worship. Let us not 
Let us worship in truth, the truth provided in God's word. God needs no image than Christ. And although we are in need of the sacraments as images now in this kingdom of darkness as he has given them to us, we need no image but Christ as well, eternally and ultimately. He will be all to us, and he is all to those in Christ. We have no need of anything else but him. His righteousness is enough. His work is enough. His provision is enough. His worship is enough. We are never enough. And the work of our hands, especially the images of God which we may make, are never enough. But God provides for us what we need. Christ is enough. The image of Christ we see in his word is enough. Let God be the center of our lives and believe him and follow his second commandment in all of life. That is, worship as he commands until we see him as he is. Let us keep the faith and keep the second commandment, seeking no other image than that which is provided by God himself, as we seek no other salvation but that which is provided by God himself in Christ. Until the face of God himself in Jesus Christ is provided for us again, for us as the image of the invisible God, in whose sight we will live in glory and happiness for eternity. May he come soon. Let us go to him in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you that you have not simply allowed us to worship in any manner that we please. For Lord, you have worked through the image that you have provided for us, that you awaited by this declaration that we might see Christ, that we might see you, Lord, that we might be with you eternally, that we might live in communion with you for all of life. We ask, Lord, that as Christ is the image of the invisible God, that we would have our minds brought into Christ, Lord. That is, we would look up into heaven and see Christ there, that we would desire him, that you would come soon, Lord, that we would have the mind of Christ, We pray, Lord, that image worship for us would all be gone. Lord, that you would give us the the desire to take the things that dishonor you and images out. Lord, that you would give us the desire to be pure in our worship towards you. For, Lord, you show us the way of worship. May we worship you only in the way that you have given us in truth and in spirit. Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself as we continue, as we see your images that you gave us in the Lord's Supper, images of your love, of the promise, and the covenant of Christ. We ask all these things, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.